Blog Talk Radio. September 16th, 2016 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard, and this is where we discuss news, politics, and culture from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and I see a bunch of my usual people over here in the chat room. I thank you for joining me live over here at Blog Talk Radio on this Friday afternoon. Today is one of the days where I think I provide you guys with a particularly unique value. I always think I provide you with a unique value anyway. Otherwise, I guess I wouldn't be doing this show. But today in particular, I'm talking about privacy and in reaction to some of Edward Snowden's recent comments about the relation between privacy and property. And in that I think that I'm going to, um, you know, again, be providing you something that's unique. You're not going to hear this argument anywhere else. So do stay tuned if you're interested in this topic. If you think you might want to know whether Snowden is right, that privacy is the fountainhead of all other rights, stay tuned and we will talk about it. Uh, Just to be clear, you know, I want to say I myself tend to see Edward Snowden as heroic. Uh, Obviously, we're all dealing with incomplete information out there about him, but all the information that I have seems to tend to, you know, say that he is a hero, that he was heroic to expose these unjust bulk surveillance programs by our government. It remains to be seen what the effect of those revelations is going to be, but I believe overall that his intent was good and that he was working to expose unjust programs that likely could not be exposed any other way. And in that he is heroic. So with that being said, I am going to be critical of comments that he has made about privacy and privacy being in his words, the foundation of other rights or the fountainhead for other rights. And what I, and the reason that I'm critical of that is because I like him believe that privacy is a tremendous value. And I believe that in order to properly protect privacy, you need to recognize property and contract rights as the foundation for privacy and not the reverse. That's what he's been talking about this week. So that's why I'm motivated to kind of circle back to this topic again. I do hope you will join me and listen to what I have to say here. If you go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com, 
you will see the list of program notes that I have planned for today's show. Of course, heavily weighted to this issue of privacy. We're also going to do a little update on the state of privacy law in the country today. How much have Snowden's revelations actually helped to achieve? Of course, he can do only so much, right? Then there's the battle in the courts and there's the battle in our legislatures, unfortunately. So, um, you know, go check those out. We are, you know, get a little preview. If you do want to call in and talk to me about this topic today, the number is 760-888-5817. Again, that's 760-888-5817. I will try also to keep a monitor over here on the chat room at Blog Talk Radio and answer any questions and comments that you've got over there. At the same time, um, I will sometimes be looking over at Twitter as well. If you follow me at Amy Peakoff on Twitter, I'll see if I can monitor that during the course of the live show as well. I seem to be stirring up a bit of conversation over there with my comments about Snowden and and privacy over there. So uh, that being said, go to don'tletitgo.com, and you will see actually that the first program note is just a little fun thing that is not privacy related. And it is this kind of latest evolution in my buttered coffee journey, which is I'm starting to make coffee in this little Bialetti stovetop percolator. And the reason that I'm checking this out, there's a couple reasons, you know, I have been using a Keurig for last couple of years or so. And a Keurig like other, you know, coffee machines, that end up having parts of the machines that have standing water in them, it can be a breeding ground for bacteria and mold and other things. And there has been a study on this that, you know, average Keurig machines end up being the host of all these things. I clean my Keurig regularly, but nonetheless, there are parts inside where you've got that standing water going and it seems like you never completely get the thing cleaned out and dried out. So I decided, okay, I'm going to go for one of these percolators. The little percolators, you clean them very easily. They get completely dry, no breeding ground for bacteria and mold. And people who follow my health condition that I've talked about a little bit here, I've got that Hashimoto's. It's a autoimmune disorder. It's fairly minor. I've got it really good under control. But what you'd like to do if you've got an autoimmune thing going on is reduce the number of assaults on your immune system from either things like bacteria and mold or allergens and stuff like that. So this is just part of my journey in that. Plus it makes really good coffee. I've had it recommended to me by a couple of friends, percolators. So testing it out, really enjoying it. In fact, I'm sipping a little cup here. I'm experimenting with how much of this stuff I can drink a day. They say it's a six cup stovetop espresso maker. In my world, it makes two very small cups. So I'm trying to figure out how strong are these, how much can I take. You may end up with a very caffeinated host here today because I'm sipping my third small cup of this stuff here today. So anyway, check that out if that's something that interests you. And let's dive in to the main argument of the show. Let me check the chat room really quick over here at Blog Talk Radio first. Now, what do we have here? Someone's saying I'm a good multitasker. Is that because I'm talking about coffee at the same time as privacy? Who knows? Oh, reading some things as 
I talk. Okay, good. Now, it's, it's hard to be a good multitasker on a radio show where you've got a chat room live going. That's a challenge. Yaron Brook is excellent at it. I've seen him do it in action live when he's been a guest here in the studio, and he is much better at it than I am. Uh, someone says I'm going to be all jacked up. I don't know if that's about my coffee or about something else. Uh, yeah. Oh, uh, Rob Abier in the chat room is talking about this tweet with this exchange that he and I have had out there on Twitter about liberals abandoning their support for privacy as soon as they find out that privacy's foundation is in the right to private property. Yeah, that's exactly it. There has been a movement among progressives and liberals to have privacy be a distinct right separate from the right to property, which I argue is the foundation of privacy. They want it to be separate from the right to property. This has been going on since 1890, and it's that famous law review article that was written by former Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis. So um, we will be tackling this issue. You know, Which one's fundamental, privacy or property? I argue it's property. If you want to argue it's privacy, you might want to call and check it out. But I've got an argument that I've gone into publication with a while ago that I'll go ahead and give you here. Jay in the chat room says, give me coffee for all the things I can control and wine for the things I can't. Yeah, that's probably pretty accurate. Oh, Robert NYC here is in the chat room. Ah, so welcome, welcome, Robert. Good to see you here. Definitely miss you as well. Feel free to call in if you want, if you end up having an opinion on the whole Snowden thing. That would be fun. 760-888-5817 is the number if you want to do that. Okay, so let's go in. And Business Insider actually published a little article summarizing the comments that Snowden made in that little Snowden Live event that they did after the Wednesday night premiere of the movie. Haven't seen the movie yet. I want to see it early next week and then I'll give you guys a little review on it or something, but that's not really the thing, you know, that theoretically is so important to me. I'm, I'm already on board with the idea that sudden, you know, Snowden did a heroic thing in revealing the details about these bulk surveillance programs by the government. And I'm going to defend that and talk about that in just a little bit when we go through the update on the law. But, you know, cause some people say, Oh, well, he never proved that any particular person had their Fourth Amendment right violated. Yes, he did. He showed that all of us are constantly having our Fourth Amendment right violated all the time. There are constantly what I believe are unconstitutional searches and seizures of information going on all the time, every single day, still happening, even through these so-called legislative reforms that have happened in the past couple of years, again, thanks to Snowden. So it's there. Uh, so is he heroic? Yes. But as I'm going to argue here, he's wrong in the comments. Now, what happened? Uh, someone asked him, Matt Zoller seats. There was a conversation who, that he had with Snowden. He said, quote, there are still people who hear your story and respond, well, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs. If you aren't doing anything wrong, you have nothing to worry about, end quote. And there's a good paraphrase of what is actually being said here in this Business Insider article. They say, in other words, the thinking sometimes goes, first of all, surveillance is necessary for national security. 
And second of all, if you're a law-abiding citizen, why should you care if there is government surveillance? So Snowden gives this response. And first of all, he says, well, the origin of this kind of, you know, if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, is Nazi propaganda. So first of all, we should consider the source of it. And that's not a great argument, right? Because even a Nazi propagandist might say something true. So you do have to get at the substance of what it is. And then he goes on to talk about the substance. You know, he wants to go to the substance of this argument about if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear. Uh, He says, first of all, privacy is the fountainhead of rights. Of course, Ayn Rand had the book, The Fountainhead, so he may have been influenced in his choice of language by Rand. And we've heard that he, at least at one point in his life, has been influenced by Rand, so it's likely that that might be the source of his choice of of word there. But he says, uh, privacy isn't about something to hide. Privacy is about something to protect. That's who you are. He says, privacy is baked into our language, our core concepts of government and self in every way. It's why we call it private property. Without privacy, you don't have anything for yourself. And then, you know, people say, oh, you have nothing to hide. You know, if, then you shouldn't worry about surveillance. He says, arguing that you don't care about privacy because you have nothing to hide is like arguing that you don't care about free speech because you have nothing to say. And he says, what we have to do is we have to actually not just accept arguments that our government gives us. We have to actually tackle them. And then he goes back to the Nazi propaganda thing. You know, again, it's not the issue that this is part of Nazi propaganda that's important. It's actually confronting what it is. Um, so, so let's go into this. You know, what is what is the self, right? And, and how how is privacy related to it? If you want a full you know, treatment of this. I actually talk about the the nature and value of privacy in a whole lecture that I've sold through the Ayn Rand Institute e-store. The whole collection of three lectures can be downloaded for seven bucks or something like that. And I put a link to that in the program notes at don'tletitgo.com. But one of the things that I talk about there is something that Snowden touches on here. He says, privacy is what gives you the ability to share with the world who you are on your own terms. He says, for them to understand what you're trying to be and protect for yourself the parts of you you're not sure about that you're still experimenting with, end quote, right? You can share with the world if you have privacy. You can share with the world those things that you choose to share. You can keep to yourself those things that you would like to keep to yourself, or maybe, you know, for instance, you've got an email or message going with a friend. Maybe you're trying to work out what your particular view is on something, um, you know, what you actually want to do about a certain situation in your life or something with a friend. You might do this over a phone call, an email, uh, you know, Facebook message, who knows what it is, right? Um, and, And so, you know, and also just the idea to have kind of a private you know, journal in your computer, right? There's different ways. You can work it out with yourself. You can work it out in a conversation with a select friend, et cetera. If you don't have privacy, then you don't have any means by which you can journal or have conversations with a friend to figure out what you want to do about something, what your point of view is, 
practice certain talents, right? You might want to record a video of yourself doing something and then watch it and critique your performance and then do it again and again before you put it out on YouTube because you would like to have that viral YouTube video that makes you a million bucks or whatever it is. You are not able to do any of this stuff if you don't have privacy, right? Because whatever it is that's out there is going to be released potentially to everyone and you have no ability to develop and refine yourself, your views, your talents, your decisions about what you're going to do in your life, etc. cetera. Um, so, of course, that is part of the value of privacy. He says, freedom of religion doesn't mean that much if you can't figure out what you actually believe without being influenced by the criticisms of outside direction and peer pressure. And he says it goes on and on. So that's just one example of you trying to figure out what you believe about something in the world. And maybe, like I said, you're doing it through some sort of journaling, uh, through some sort of conversation with a friend. You know, you're putting it out in a limited way, but you don't want to put it out to the entire world yet, right? And if you don't have the freedom, the ability to do that, he argues, and I agree, then it's going to interfere with your ability to develop yourself in accordance with your own decisions and wishes. Uh, you know, it says privacy is baked into our language, our core concepts of government and self. Um, that in and of itself is not necessarily an argument. The word private in conjunction with property doesn't necessarily mean that private is the foundation. But let's go ahead and, and talk about this, right? What is I mean, there's a lot of people out there who would say that privacy is more important to them than property. Uh, in fact, you know, there's this whole minimalist movement out there, which in some ways has a kernel of truth to it. I've talked a little bit about minimalism in the past and played with a concept I call selfish minimalism. You know, the idea that having a whole bunch of property will sometimes distract you from the things that are important to you because you spend your whole time caring for stuff as opposed to pursuing your values. This is what's kind of behind the minimalist movement. So there's a lot of people who would say, yeah, privacy is more important to me than property, but that's not the point. But I do think that that is, I think the appeal of this sort of argument that there's this tremendous value of privacy and people see it as somehow more important than property. But what I did when I very first started my journey in exploring the so-called right to privacy, and, and by the way, I actually argued that there shouldn't be a distinct right to privacy. We don't speak of privacy as a right. We speak of privacy as a state that you can enjoy and create for yourself through the exercise of, of your other rights. And that's how I've come to understand it. So, you know, this idea of a right to privacy is something from the very beginning, I wondered, you know, should there be one? And in fact, and I've talked about this just a couple of weeks ago on a show, Leonard Peikoff is the one who sent me off on the journey to figure out, is there a right to privacy? When I was a research assistant for his radio show way back when, you know, he says, oh, it's right to privacy, go figure it out. So I go and look, and this article written by Warren and Brandeis, 1890 Harvard Law Review, is the one that is credited with first giving rise to this concept of a right to privacy. And the whole article is an extended argument in which they try to say that 
property and contract are not enough to protect privacy. Now that we've got technology, like instantaneous photography was the big thing at the time, right? Now that we've got this technology, then you need more than property and contract because there's these cases that property and contract can't exactly cover and protect for us. So what we need is we need this new right, a distinct right to privacy. And then, in fact, they also argue, and it, you know, this is probably more Brandeis than Warren because I think Brandeis is the more theoretical of, of the two. He says privacy is the foundation for property and contract, that the ultimate right is the right to, quote, be let alone, okay? The right to be let alone as the foundation of rights. And what I did when I first started was think about all the examples that they gave, you know, as their examples showing that we need this distinct right to privacy, you know, privacy and said, do they make sense? And I said, no, for every example that you could put forth, I can tell you how property and contract be the right that is protected in that context. Uh, Is it always easy to apply these principles of property and contract rights to various new situations that come about because of improvements in technology? No, not always, but nonetheless, I think they're there. So, you know, I went through doing that and nonetheless, right, even though you'd say, okay, well, you can reduce privacy to property and contract, this idea of privacy as so important as so foundational for people seems to be very, very attractive. And a lot of people have been very upset about these Snowden revelations because of the important value of privacy in our lives. Um, so then what's a more basic argument? And, and what I did, you know, again, I draw a lot of my thinking from Ayn Rand. Um, I'm not going to blame her for every single conclusion I've ever drawn in my life because not all of it comes directly from her. Uh, but I think that insofar as I've been able to do some good work in privacy, that it comes about because of thinking from her philosophical framework and in particular her theory of rights. So follow me on this, right? So when you think of rights, what are rights? Rand talks about rights as rights to action. You have a right to take certain actions in furtherance of your life to support your life. And the basis for rights is in the need to engage in this self-sustaining, self-generated action as a human being. We need to be free to engage in actions according to our own best judgment so that we can produce the values necessary to sustain our lives. But when Rand talks about rights, she always emphasizes that rights are rights to action, not rights to a thing of some kind, right? Um, Now, what do you need in order to exercise your rights? You do need to be free of initiation of force, okay? You do need to be free from initiation of Force. And that will sound something like what the privacy people talk about is the right to be let alone. However, when you are going to law, you know, the, in, you're going into the realm of law, which we have to do when you enter society and you're talking about the implementation of rights, you have to do it through law. We need to be objective in defining what sort of things people would do to you that violate your rights. Okay. 
And so this is where it starts to be important to be very clear about when someone is exercising their rights and when the exercise of those rights is violated. This idea of, you know, the right to be, quote, let alone, divorced from any particular physical thing that that other person is doing to you and defining exactly where that rights violation occurs physically, that's not good enough, right? If you just say, okay, it's the right to be let alone and you don't demarcate where there's been a contract made, where there's some property rights being violated and stuff, then you are entering a realm in which the government can start talking about, as it does today, so-called reasonable expectations of privacy. What does that mean according to the doctrines that are in our constitutional jurisprudence today? It means that you actually do expect privacy on the one hand, right? Although some people talk about whether even that's required, but yeah, you expect privacy and the, your expectation of privacy, your expectation of privacy is one that society is prepared to recognize as reasonable. That's what this means. This is what your privacy hinges on today. And the whole reason is because you've got this right to be let alone, this vague concept. So, so let's go back to the issue of rights as rights to action. And I'm going to give you an argument that I've made in publication. Some people like it. Some people don't like the argument. You can tell me whether you like it or not. You can tell me in the chat room. You can call. You can tweet me, whatever. But here, here is the argument. Think about the very most basic thing that you do if you exercise a right to free speech, for example, right? A right to free speech. What do you do when you exercise your right to free speech? You talk. And right now, when I'm speaking to you, exercising my right to freedom of expression, I'm doing it using a lot of property, right? Um, thanks to people who support this show. I've got an account through Blog Talk Radio. I also have an internet connection that's supported by so many of you. Um, I've got some equipment that I've got here. I'm using my computer. I've got a little four-channel mixer that I like to use that helps the, the show sound better. I've got a very nice microphone. So I'm using property in exercising this, but you could imagine that I could just go out on the street someplace where people allow the public to be, and I could just start talking. It's not very effective. I mean, you've been to these public places where someone's, for example, trying to tell you that you're going to go to hell because you're going to Comic-Con or something like that, right? Um, every year at Comic-Con, for example, I didn't go this year, but um, you know, sometimes when you go there, they've got these people saying that everyone who goes to Comic-Con is going to hell and they have their big, big megaphones and everything else. It's funny, right? But Anyway, again, what's the most basic thing you do? If you exercise a right to freedom of expression, you speak. You take those ideas that are in your mind and you vocalize them out to the world. It's an action, right? That is that is what, you know, it's kind of a, a quintessential right just to, to speak. You are acting through vocalizing some idea of yours. Similarly, if you are exercising your right to property, you are engaging in productive effort to either, for example, convert to your own use property that's never been used before. That's the old Lockean, you know, mixture labor kind of stuff. Uh, and there's a, a root of 
truth to that. But more likely today, what are you doing? You're working some sort of job or you're selling something in exchange for money, and then you use that money in order to buy property. And then you are exercising a claim over that property. This is, these are all actions, things that you do. I'm gesturing right now, and I just spilled a little bit of coffee on my computer keyboard. It's, it's a very pretty pattern. I should take a picture of the pattern. It's not very dangerous. I think it's not going to hurt my computer, but it's pretty funny that I'm gesturing while I'm doing this. Somebody said, somebody said, Amy, start doing a video with your show or something. I'm thinking, I want to look so silly if I do a video while I'm doing my show because I do all this funny gesturing. And here I was, I was holding my cup of coffee and I'm gesturing. I spilled little bits of coffee on my, uh, my keyboard here. Pretty funny. I actually should go and get a little paper towel and not let it dry. Hold on one second, people. This is uh, this is sausage radio. Hold on. Okay, I'm back. People are laughing um, here in the chat room. I don't blame you at all. But yeah, if I let this dry, it's going to be much worse. Um, it's a well-used, well-loved Apple computer, you know, and it's served me well. I don't think it's going to stop now. Hardly any of the coffee was on the keys, by the way, just a couple little splatters. I didn't end up taking a picture, sorry. Um, okay, I think I got it here. Not too bad. Sorry, everyone. Um, okay, so let, let's go back. So what I was saying was that if you are exercising your right of freedom of expression, you are acting, you are speaking, you are vocalizing something. Consider what happens if you're supposedly exercising a so-called right to privacy, right? A right to privacy. Is the most basic thing that you do when you're exercising this so-called right, is it acting and I argue, no, it's not. What's the most basic thing that you would do if you wanted to keep something private? You would just not speak. You would keep whatever thought it is that you've got in your own head, right? You wouldn't speak. So, so the most basic thing that you do with respect to privacy is be quiet, you know, um, that it, it's not speaking at all. And then, in fact, if you want to go ahead and enjoy a state of privacy while actually acting in any way, shape, or form, what you would have to do is you'd also have to be exercising some other right, like a right to property. And then, of course, you might be within you know, a certain context of your home or you know, again, you make a contract with an email company, email service provider, or Facebook, or somebody else, you're exercising a contract right while communicating with a friend, something like that. So hopefully you under, you know, you kind of see the difference there. If rights are rights to action, and I agree with Rand on that account, that uh, you, you need to be free to act according to your own best judgment. It is hard to see privacy as the same sort of thing as any other right, because the most basic thing that you do if you are trying to enjoy privacy is not to act out in the world. It is to keep something in your own mind and not share it with anybody else. So at least that is, you know, my argument. Uh, the other thing too, is you'd say, okay, well, what if, you know, 
you go into society with other people as well. And you say, okay, well, I have a right to privacy, so therefore I'm going to go and join some society, and I want all of these people to interact with me. I want them to listen to my show. I want them to buy things from me. Um, you know, I want them to hire me, and I want to go work and everything. But don't look at me, right? Don't observe anything about me. Don't listen to anything that I say, even though it's an earshot and everything else. This is a conversation that I had with Leonard Peikoff years ago. It's like, how could you say that on the one hand, you want to enter into society with other people and engage in all of the benefits of specialization and trade and everything else, and yet have people know absolutely nothing about you? There's that kind of basic contradiction as well. Um, so if, if you think about this now here in the chat room, they're talking about some of the particular examples of privacy and, you know, again, is it based in property and everything else? And I'm going to argue, yes, it is. If, you know, if you want to create a state of privacy for yourself, the way to do it is by exercising your property rights. And, I don't know if Snowden's doing this wittingly or unwittingly or anything else, but by talking about privacy as a foundation, he is inviting government to keep privacy on the very kind of arbitrary footing that it is on today and continue all of these bulk surveillance programs and everything else that are out there. Now, how does that work? How does that connection happen? So, you know, again, what I just was talking about was this issue of, Privacy is not being a fundamental right because it's not really something that you would exercise in a fundamental level at the basic level by acting. You keep your privacy by not sharing with the world, by not doing anything outward toward the world at all. Just keep your stuff in your own head. That's how you would keep things private versus the other rights. They all require action. So there's that. Um, how does, the way that privacy has been seen as a fundamental right, how does that contribute to the problem that we have today? So this is what happens, right? Um, privacy is, if it's, you know, if it's its own right and it is not seen as based in property, then what you have seen in the past over 100 years is the courts moving away from a property-based conception of privacy and instead hinging privacy on language like this so-called reasonable expectation. And one of the outgrowths of this has been this thing that I've talked about so many times on the show, the so-called third-party doctrine that says as soon as you share information with a third party, you no longer have a reasonable expectation of privacy in it. It's no longer covered by the Fourth Amendment and therefore, because it's no longer covered by the Fourth Amendment, the government can obtain that information legally without a warrant based on probable cause, based on particularized suspicion. And I've got you know a couple articles out there, and one of them I put a link to at the blog at don'tletitgo.com, where I talk about how it is that the third-party doctrine has, in effect, made privacy illegal. 
I also have the little lecture, Legalizing Privacy, Why and How, that you can hear about this. But in essence, what happens today, right, is we conduct a whole ton of our lives by sharing information with third parties. We communicate with each other electronically, either by phone, email, video chat, other chats, right? I'm communicating with you now over the internet. So we communicate by sharing information. We do our banking by sharing information. We buy things by sharing information with all sorts of third parties, right? We've got the credit card company and then Amazon also. And then Amazon is often, you know, kind of a middleman for the company that's actually sending you the products. So you're sharing information all over the place to do any sort of business and lead any kind of life today. If you combine the fact that we are increasingly sharing information with everybody else with the third party doctrine, then it makes privacy illegal. And that's particularly true in today's world where Barack Obama with his pen and his phone orders all of these government agencies to start combining the big databases that they're collecting on us until they have one huge database that provides this almost complete picture of what we do with our lives on a 24-hour-a-day basis. It's, it's, you know, again, and I talked about this in the lecture, it's like living in a Benthamite panopticon, the kind of prison that he designed where the prison guards can monitor you 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's, in effect, what we have. It is not possible today except for a few isolated areas in which wonderful principal geniuses like the people at Apple have decided to give us robust encryption, right? It's only in those realms where you are able to use your property and contract rights to purchase for yourself some real semblance of privacy. In other areas where being able to avail yourself of this awesome technology where that requires you, you know, that you share information with third parties, privacy is effectively illegal today. And that's why I always talk about my theory as one in which I'm trying to argue that we should legalize privacy. We need to legalize privacy. I talk about why we have to, the value of it, and how. And the how is getting rid of this third-party doctrine. Um, we can get rid of this third-party doctrine. We can go back to a property and contract-based conception of privacy and it is in that common law property and contract-based conception of privacy that you can find all the avenue that you need for proper government investigation of the bad guys, right? Because when you're listening to me now, you say, well, if you get rid of the third-party doctrine, then the government can't find the terrorists or the mafiosos and everybody else. No, they certainly can. And, you know, again, if you go to that, article that I have. It's called Don't Tread on My Metadata. That's the link that I have at my blog at don'tletitgo.com. If you read that, I talk about how you can use the common law of contract to provide an avenue for government to do legitimate criminal investigation, even with no third-party doctrine. Because you know, the idea behind this third-party doctrine was you know, the criminal shares information with a third party. He has no reasonable expectation of privacy in it. And therefore, the informant can go to the government and share the information. And you don't have to have a warrant based on probable cause, et cetera. And the problem with the last several decades is that 
this doctrine, which was created in this weird criminal investigation context, has been extended to apply to all of us when we make a contract with Verizon or our bank or you know any other sort of innocent contract that you're engaging in just to live and enjoy your life. So in any event, um, oh, they're talking about all sorts of interesting property rights violations and things in the... Um, in the chat room here. Rob says, I'm going to stop typing and let Amy make her argument. Yay. Thank you. Uh, Ed says privacy is not only property. That's the whole point of this discussion. The third party doctrine is based on the fact that electronic communications are the property of the third party. Well, the communications are the property of the third party. If that's what the parties agree to, right? You could say that I have a contract with a third party and the third party has access to the communications only for limited purposes, and they are not considered the property of the third party. And in fact, in intellectual property law, it has been established that when you send a letter, uh, when you send a letter to someone, the owner of the contents of the letter is the author. Even if you are a valid recipient of the actual physical copy of the letter, the contents cannot be shared by you. The recipient does not own the actual intellectual property in the letter itself. That's a Salinger case from from a while ago. I'm going to go ahead and take Ed's call at the risk of engaging in another debate. Hi, Ed. How are you? Hey, good. Uh, Just a quick thing. uh, iOS 10 came out this week. Did you did you upgrade your phone to iOS 10? I have not upgraded to iOS 10 that I know of. So what does iOS 10 have that I should be availing myself of right now? I'm sure it's something awesome. Oh, it has lots of awesome things. But it also has a document about 50 pages long and about in really, really small type that you have to click agree to um, before you upgrade. And no one has read that document. Right. I say that flatly. Not one individual has read that document. Everyone clicks agree. And what if the, that document, which we all click to get iOS 10, it said, um, we can give anything we want to uh, the government if they make a lawful request. The, the problem with saying that privacy... Well, now, now here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing, right? If, if, the, if the government makes a lawful request in a proper legal context, I don't have... A problem with that. Nobody who makes the contract with Apple should have a problem with that. The issue is that today the law is actually immoral. So those lawful requests are not necessarily moral or just requests, right? Well, my, I, I'm certainly, I certainly think your approach in your paper is better than the current approach. Uh, I'm not, I'm not really arguing against that, but the problem is that, um, when you make a contract with a service provider, uh, it's not like a regular contract. It's take it or leave it. And pretty much everybody takes it. And so it, it, by saying it's solely property-based and you can sign it away, then it will be signed away 99.9% of the time. Yeah, uh, and, and, and people, people like, can choose to do that or, or not. But, you know, what happens when someone like Snowden comes out with his revelations is people end up acquiring much more taste and care, you know, taste for and care for their privacy. And so they will, you know, seek out 
for example, end-to-end encryption and other sorts of awesome goodies that they wouldn't have done before. You know, you're never going to get around, you know, there's, we could have the same debate about junk food. Everyone's going to buy junk food and, you know, do all these horrible things to themselves. People are going to buy junk privacy. They will. A lot of people don't care about their privacy nearly enough, or they figure, okay, well, you know, what's really the interest of these people in me personally? It's not that big of an interest. And then you end up being like Colin Powell because you get hacked or whatever. And then your emails are all over the place. I didn't even pick up on that this week, but, um, you know, so, so some people, they gamble, right? They say the risk is relatively small, even though they value their privacy, right? They just go ahead and, and avail themselves of these benefits and, and you know, kind of hope. But then there's other people who, with education, will, you know, try to choose. If there are competitors out there actually offering an alternative, right? You know, like you say, sometimes there aren't any real competitors offering, offering anything like a real alternative, uh, yeah, I would hope so. In, in a free society, of course, we're not in a free society. In a free society, uh, you know, I would hope so. I, I don't, on the other hand, think we were talking about earlier in the chat room. It's like, you know, what what things can I can I do? Can I uh, uh, look through your blinds with an infrared viewer from across the street? Can I? Yeah. Uh, fly, no, no, and then these and these uh, these are all very not you know over, not yeah. over your property, but but. Close to yeah. it, so that no, I no, no, and and these these are these are all these are all things that we could definitely talk about. Like I said, it's not necessarily always easy to apply property concepts. You know, we could talk about particles that are emanated from your property and everything else, and you know, what sort of steps do you have to actually take? Yeah. you know, in order to you know basically show that a, you know because because there are things like for instance you know, there, there's, not, there's 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 laws ed ed i mean we this is going to be on the scope of the discussion today but there are you know doctrines like the doctrine of lost and abandoned property have i abandoned my property interest in information about myself if i fail to put blinds that will block the infrared scanners i would say no i would say that the putting down of the blind at least you know shows that i am making efforts to claim whatever information that there is behind those blinds as my own property. Maybe you're going to be able to see it. Would you have the right to put it out on the internet? No. So these are discussions that we could have, right? My mind has gone these places, but it's, it's kind of beyond the point here because right now we don't even have the ability, even if it was offered by Apple or, you know, I think Apple's probably got one of the best deals going in the sense that everybody understands that Apple is, collecting from us the minimal amount of information that it needs to provide us with all the awesome stuff that it does. And it's doing so on principle because it doesn't want to be responsible for turning stuff over to the government. Nonetheless, there's some things that it's going to turn over in response to a valid request. And I have no problem with that. But, you know, right now, Apple's doing that by technological means, by giving us this encryption, so long as they are permitted to by the government, right? That's another thing that the government's trying to outlaw, this encryption workaround. But the most basic problem is that the government is deeming that as soon as I make a contract that involves giving information to somebody else, then suddenly I've got no Fourth Amendment rights in that information anymore, simply because I engaged in a contract that involves sharing information for a very limited purpose. And that's BS, 
right? No, we I, can't... I totally agree. That's terrible. Yeah. And and that's that's the that's basic terrible. problem that I want to get at. And we you know, we can talk about how do you handle the infrared and the blah blah blah. And I think there are, you know, resources within the common law that we could do that. But the the basic problem is real privacy today is either illegal or it has to be achieved in this way that the government is trying to outlaw through encryption technology. Yeah. Yes, obviously I'm not up on the common law, um, but. Well, I and, you know, there, we, we can all use I refreshers might, on the common law. Yeah, I mean, it, law made by judges, right? So I, I, I. My last point is I think maybe if we are going to protect privacy, and oh, I, I recommend Greenwald's book on Snowden, by the way. It has a really good defense of privacy from a practical standpoint. It's like if you don't have privacy, these terrible things are going to happen. And if you do have oh, privacy, yeah. No, it's very good discussions of the value of privacy. Yes, they have, they have um, a good grasp of the value of privacy. Yes. Um, I, I think we might have to go beyond simply property, or rather if you're – going to use solely property to justify privacy, you may be twisting the concept of property beyond the bounds of a sort of a rational concept. That was my point. Well, so, so okay, and, and again, this is kind of separating off a couple things, right? We can talk about privacy and the moral value of privacy and the, you know, kind of a moral right to privacy, and then you talk about how is it that you implement the protection of privacy in a legal context and when we do that, we have to be objective. And if you're going to be objective, you need to be able to point to physical things that people have done to violate your rights. And the only way you can do that in the context of privacy, I argue, is when you say, look, they violated this right to property. They invaded the sanctity of this particular contract between these two people without a proper warrant. You need to be objective, right? And, and what they're saying is, oh, it's a right to be let alone. And when does it apply? It applies whenever you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. Well, when is the expectation of privacy reasonable? It's when society is prepared to recognize as reasonable as interpreted by whatever judge happens to be sitting in front of you. That is just too arbitrary to give you any sort of yeah. solid protection for well, privacy. I agree. One thing we might have to have, though, are two separate standards for protection of privacy. One a standard um, that applies to the government in its role as, uh, you know, um, protector, protector of individual rights, and another mm-hmm. to be applied against other citizens. I mean, you know, right now the government. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, you've got you've got field, the you know? you've got the Fourth Amendment, right? We've got the Fourth Amendment that talks about when government is engaging in criminal investigations, and then of course you have the tort law of privacy, which is, I think, also due to get some kind of reform as well and make it more objective. But I could see that, you know, you could say the standards are different right now. That issue is, is sort of floating in, in my head a little, and I don't think we want to, you know, tackle the two different standards here, right? The thing that I'm concerned about now is the government being able to get its hands on all this information and compile the huge omnibus database on you, which is disgusting. Um, it, it, you know, it shouldn't be able to do that. And, and of course, government through the IRS and all the other ways that they can make your life miserable is much more of a risk and a threat to you than, you know, for example, Google or, 
Amazon who likes to know what you're interested in buying, right? Um, I, I, yeah, I have so much more. I, I much more the government. I, I gotta run, so I'm gonna leave you, and uh, see you next week. I appreciate it, Ed. Thanks very much. And then there's one thing that his call reminded me that I wanted to to talk about as well. Suppose you have privacy as the fundamental and you say, well, property is the consequence. It gives rise to cases in which property rights are going to be further eroded, degraded, violated. And I'll give you the examples of the sorts of cases. Suppose, for example, you say that your right to privacy in whether you use certain drugs, mind-altering drugs, your right to privacy in your use of those drugs trumps Freudian slip, not intended. Uh, I don't I have no idea what Trump thinks about privacy because, I mean, I really don't know what he thinks about anything, but certainly not very much about privacy. Uh, you know, your right to your status about drug use, that it trumps the employer's right to property in deciding whom he's going to hire to work at his business. There have been cases like this where employers have drug testing programs that they require of their employees because they think it's important that their employees not use mind-altering drugs when they're in the workplace. And in some cases, the courts have decided that the employee's privacy is somehow more important that the, than the employer's property rights. What does that do that just further degrades property? And again, since I believe, and I think if you think about it, you'll agree with me, that I believe that a robust right to property, a robustly protected right to property, is essential to getting real protection for our privacy rights. Since I believe that is essential, I think that if you have a conception of privacy that is eroding property rights, then it is self-defeating, that you are going to be undermining the ability to enjoy privacy insofar as your doctrine of privacy consists of devaluing, eroding the right to property. Uh, That's one example, right, this employer-employee scenario. Another example has been given in these kind of cases where there's a rental car company and the rental car company attaches to the cars that it rents out a GPS and speed tracking device. And as part of your contract, when you rent the car, you say, I promise not to drive the car above X speed. And if I do, then I have an extra charge on my rental bill. And the rationale for this, you know, they can do it. They're the property owners. They should be able to do it forever they want. But there's a reasonable rationale for this. They don't want the car to get tickets, maybe that they as the owner would get billed for. So there's that. But also, if you drive the car above the certain speed, maybe it would you know, put extra wear and tear on the car. It puts you at more risk of getting in an accident in the car. Uh, it also looks bad, right? So suppose you're engaging in reckless driving behavior and it says, you know, enterprise, rent a car on the car and these people are seeing you drive recklessly all over the place. That's not good advertising for them. So there's a lot of legitimate rationales for these companies to say, I don't want my customers driving the cars that they rent from us above a certain speed. Nonetheless, there have been lawsuits 
in which customers of a rental car company have said that the rental car company is invading the so-called right to privacy of the customer by engaging in this monitoring and having a contract that says we're going to charge you extra if you drive above X miles per hour, whatever that is. It's ridiculous. Or, you know, it could be also don't drive it out of a certain 100-mile radius or, you know, what, whatever the contract is that's based on these tracking things. You can decide whether or not you want to rent with that company accordingly, but it's their car. They're choosing to rent it to you on certain terms. It's their right to property that they're exercising in specifying these terms in the contract. And, and to the extent that the courts are going to say, no, privacy is more important. It undermines the right to property. And again, in the long term, I think the ability to enjoy privacy will depend on a much better understanding of how we use our rights to property and contract to protect that privacy right. So that is my uh, thing there. So I think I've got one convert in the chat room here, Rob. He says, an understanding of the actual nature of property rights is essential to understanding privacy. I, I believe so. And if you go again to the blog at don'tletitgo.com, I have a series of four links in the program notes. Two of them are links to lectures that I've given that you can download super cheap from the Ayn Rand Institute e-store. And then two of them are links to articles that are available online that you can read and get basically the same information for free if you want to read it. So it just depends how you like to take in the information, but I do urge you if you're interested to go ahead and check out more of that. If other people do want to call in and talk about it, 760-888-5817 is the number to do so. Let me go back to the program notes and see what else I wanted to update you on in terms of privacy and the law today and stuff like that. Um, Edward Snowden has said that his disclosures have bolstered individual privacy I would agree to some extent, but as we'll see when we talk about the current state of the law, what we've got in essence is an awareness of the issue that has pushed consumer demand toward valuing companies like Apple that have offered on a massive scale robust encryption and that have come out in a principled way and are you know, fighting against the government. So it's, it's pushed the market towards offering encryption, which is you know, a little bit of a, a stopgap measure here. But you know, since technology can provide it, we may as well avail ourselves of, of encryption. Even if the law was good, I think encryption would have a value. So there's that. It, I think there has been a bolstering of individual privacy just through the tech companies that are deciding to offer us better privacy. And then the second thing is, it is true that the legislators have taken some actions to give us a little bit more protection for privacy, but it's very, very small. You know, it, it's, it's just not that impressive, and we'll talk about it in a second, you know, what's been happening legislatively. We have not had any major movement in constitutional doctrine. There have been appellate cases but the appellate cases, as far as I can tell, have so far just kind of died along the way on their way to the Supreme Court, either because the courts continue to play what EFF has called the shell game, and they refuse to actually litigate the issues, the constitutional issues on the grounds that there's no standing or this or that, or maybe that the whole 
lawsuit has become moot because Congress passed a new law that changes things ever so slightly or something. They all seem to be bogged down and stalled in the courts, all these cases that we were very interested in, like Clayman versus Obama and stuff. So we'll talk about that in, this, in a second. Um, has individual privacy been bolstered? Some. Unfortunately, not like I would like to see. And I think long-term that's going to require changing this whole third-party doctrine. Uh, then there's this story, New York Times today. You have the House Intelligence Committee urging no pardon for Edward Snowden. And if you look at the story, I actually just went ahead and turned it off because it was going to give you some sort of horrible noise. Um, if you if you look at that story at the New York Times, again, the link is at the blog, don'tletitgo.com, they'll tell you that they have a 36-page report about all the damage that Snowden has done with his revelations, but because all of it's classified, all you can get access to is a three-page executive summary, and they're saying, in effect, that while you know Snowden purports to be motivated by and to really just have exposed these unconstitutional bulk surveillance programs, in fact, they're saying that he collected all these documents that have nothing to do with those things and, in fact, are just documents revealing military secrets. And so, therefore, he's doing all this damage. And what Snowden's attorney, uh, Wisner, 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 I can't remember how, exactly how you pronounce it, um, what he's been arguing is he's saying that to the extent that these assertions are made, that Snowden gathered, what is it, 1.5 million documents, or I can't remember, all these documents – that those assertions haven't been substantiated, that the NSA is using the number of documents to which Snowden has had access to be equal to the number of documents that Snowden actually downloaded, and that there's never been any proof that Snowden has those documents, um, that there really has not been any evidence, you know, first of all, that the bulk surveillance programs are effective, and also that what Snowden has done has seriously damaged any aspect of national security. So, you know, people are going to have to, you know, decide for themselves, but it looks like you have the entire House Intelligence Committee saying, no, do not pardon Snowden. And if you do believe, as I do, that Snowden should at least get some sort of a plea bargain, that's what Snowden's going for now. He's saying, give me a plea bargain, uh, give me a plea bargain, and I'll even do some jail time that's where you are, then probably you're not for either of the major political parties. In fact, the only one that I've, that's out there that would pardon Snowden is Gary Johnson. Uh, but there's a good argument for not making Snowden go through the trial process. Apparently, under the current state of the law, Snowden explains this. Under the current state of the law, Snowden would be unable to make any argument defending himself in front of a jury. So at the determination of guilt stage of any proceeding, he would be unable to defend himself. He would be able to defend himself in front of a judge for the sentencing. But as a whistleblower, he would not get standard whistleblower protection. He would not be able to defend himself in front of a jury. Um, now, what is the state of the law? I gave you a link to the Electronic Frontier Foundation's they, they have the 2015 in review survey of the law regarding dragnet NSA spying, as they call it. 
And what they talk about, in effect, is case after case after case that looked promising as a way, you know, as a vehicle to have important constitutional issues on privacy litigated. And if you remember Judge Leon in the D.C. Circuit, you know, the the district court judge who was so adamant that the, you know, Verizon metadata program did not satisfy the requirements of even current constitutional doctrine on privacy. He was so good about this. That case, that Clayman versus Obama case, is totally stalled. As far as I know, I don't even know if it's going to reach the Supreme Court. There's still this one, Jewell versus NSA, that might end up doing something that they still keep talking about. But so many of these have been bogged down. Why? There's a few reasons. The government argues all these programs are secret, so you shouldn't be able to litigate the contours of these programs because we have to keep them secret for security. 9-11, 9-11, they keep saying. Uh, also, they'll say that notwithstanding the fact that Snowden in his revelations has shown that ordinary Americans are affected, that their rights are being violated, nonetheless, the courts will argue that nobody really has standing to challenge these. And see, this is the problem that pre-Snowden everybody was having. There were a number of people who wanted to challenge in the courts these programs because these programs have been going on at least since 2001, you know, since after 9-11 and the Patriot Act was passed. People wanted to challenge them, but they weren't able to produce any evidence required to show standing, what they call standing, that you have the ability to be in court show that your rights are affected in a way such that the court can adjudicate your case, right? You know, I don't have standing, for example, to go to a court to make a claim about a tort that was committed against my neighbor across the street if I can't show that somehow my rights were affected. And similarly, the courts have been arguing that no one is able to show that they themselves were affected. But if Snowden is able to tell you that you as a Verizon customer had your metadata swept up with everybody else's, then suddenly you can produce a bunch of Verizon customers who can go to court and say, yeah, I, I was covered by that unconstitutional secret order justifying all of this data collection, right? That's what should be the case. But nonetheless, these cases have been bogged down. So what has happened the only thing that has happened in a positive way on the legal front is congressional reform. And they talk about it under this heading of important but limited policy reform. Uh, so, you know, what do, what do you have? They say in the 2015, they have the USA Freedom Act. They said this is a course correction because for years there haven't been any restrictions on these government data surveillance programs. They say initially the EFF had supported it, but later they withdrew the support for this, but they also didn't oppose it. They say that the version that was ultimately adopted by Congress in June 2015 enabled, and this is, these are the changes, new oversight, and they say that there were some real restrictions on NSA surveillance powers. For instance, they say it requires the government to limit its collection of call records to those chosen based on a, quote, specific selection term. And they say, most significantly, the law increased transparency at the secret FISA court that's responsible for approving 
surveillance requests. There is a cadre of uh, amica curiae, you know, the friends of the court, who are able to brief the judges. Now, of course, these are all selected by legislation. So someone like me, for example, I'm not in there as one of the friends of the court. I would love to go in there and just, you know, blow up some of this figuratively speaking, intellectually speaking, of course. Uh, I think that the stuff that I would have to say would be very different than the approved friends of the court that they have by legislation. But, you know, the EFF goes on to cite and say, look, there are some friends of the court that are making some real challenges, so that's good. And they say the transparency provisions and process improvements, they make the passage of the USA Freedom Act an important moment and a starting point for future reform. At the same time, they say much remains to be done. So there's been little tweaks here and there, but overall, not very good. They do have also a diagram at the EFF site where they tell you what the current state of, you know, the actual collection and filtering of all this information is. Uh, they talk about this issue of Section 702 surveillance and how the NSA and our government is representing these programs as so-called targeted surveillance, that it's not mass surveillance. Nonetheless, the targeted surveillance includes the collection of the content of hundreds of millions of communications annually and the real-time search of billions more. And again, they give you a little document and they show you that there is real-time search of billions of communications per year and then it gets filtered. The government is doing this, no probable cause, no particularized suspicion. So this is the current initiative of EFF. They're go, you know, they're saying end section 702 surveillance, blah, blah, blah. And this is good. They achieve this goal, then at least for now, our legislature will be cutting back on this unconstitutional surveillance. But as I keep saying, long term, we need a change in constitutional doctrine so that these issues are not left up to the whim, the will of the legislatures. Um, yeah, people say, yeah, you can choose a different rental car company. Exactly. That would be very good. Um, <laughs> Rob, happy hour in the chat room, says, yes, my computer does have a built-in webcam, and yes, it is covered with tape. Smart guy. Good stuff out there. So um, state of the law, disappointing on the litigation front because I was hoping we would see some very juicy cases before the Supreme Court. Of course, I'm also disappointed that Scalia has passed away because Scalia in a couple previous cases has been showing, and I've talked about this in past shows, he has been showing the propensity to think of privacy issues as property-based, at least in the Fourth Amendment context where you can tie a particular privacy case to either a person, house, paper, or effects as explicitly, you know, named in the Fourth Amendment, then he was, you know, going down that path of reviving a more physical understanding of the, you know, of the Fourth Amendment of search and seizure. And I think that was a, a wonderful step in the, in the right direction. Okay. Now what else do we want to do? So that, that's kind of my stuff on, on privacy. Let me go back over to the switchboard and see 
if I had anybody. No, I have nobody else on hold who actually wanted to talk about these issues. I could check over on Twitter as well if somebody's challenging what I have to say here. But really, it's just an idea of you know giving you a different way to look at these privacy issues. No, it looks like people are liking the show and they're liking my little tweet. I do have that one tweet where I say I agree with Snowden that privacy is important, but for a law to be objective then property and contract must be fundamental. Privacy is a consequence. Privacy is a consequence. That state of privacy you enjoy is a consequence of you exercising your rights to property and contract. And what our government is telling us today is that insofar as you're exercising your rights to property and contract and hoping to have any modicum of online privacy, you have no control over it. Third-party doctrine just puts it smack into the control of the legislatures. You are at the mercy of legislative bodies because all this whole area has been taken out of the realm of constitutional litigation. And that's something that I think needs to be changed. I'd love to see something like the Electronic Frontier Foundation that battle on. In fact, maybe I'll just shoot them an email with my little don't tread on my metadata and see if they want to do something. That would be nice if we could do something along those lines together. So let me get you up to speed on a, you know, I just got a bunch of different other news stories over at don'tletitgo.com. This is all in the nature of just informing you. 20 Guantanamo detainees freed by Obama are suspected of returning to terror. This is an ongoing issue and it would be very important, for example, to try to keep out of this country if we can certain populations that might have among them the detainees that were freed by Obama wanting to come back and commit further acts of terror against the United States, those who are going to, you know, rejoin the fight of jihad against Western values. So just, you know, keep that in mind. This is still a very real threat out there, and Obama continues to free these people. Not, not a good thing. Uh, U.S. signs a record $38 billion military aid deal with Israel. If you read the fine print, you go into the Yahoo article, they talk about how whatever you say, it's a record deal. It's nonetheless much less than what Israel was pushing for. And as I understand it, I, I probably a year or more at least, I've looked into this whole aid with Israel issue. And in an ideal world, you would actually get rid of aid to all of these people in the Middle East and just let Israel do its thing and provide moral support. Maybe sometimes you would provide some other support. But this aid for Israel becomes necessary only in the context where we are giving money to everybody around them, the people who want to kill Israel. So it's ridiculous. It's like we're you know, funding some bizarre chicken battle or what, I don't know, chicken fight. It's, it's, it's horrible. Why, why are we funding this war? You know, if you took away the resources that we were giving to Israel's enemy in the Middle East, you wouldn't have to give so much aid to Israel. So yeah, the headline says record 38 billion military aid deal. If you look at the fine print, it's probably not enough to help Israel defend itself against the enemies around it that we are also funding. White House raises refugee target to 110,000. And here's an issue on which I and my, uh, you know, people who want to cut off immigration from all Muslims, we agree with this. We should not have a government 
who has a target of bringing in a certain amount of refugees and who is using our tax dollars to subsidize the bringing in of refugees from this country. Um, Yeah, maybe some of these refugees are in trouble through no fault of their own. They should be the subjects of private charity, and it is private charity or their own money that should pay for proper screening, if, if proper screening is possible, and they shouldn't be here otherwise. This idea that we have a federal government, you know, and, and they're all hiding. As far as I can tell, this story is being buried behind Clinton's health this and Trump said that and he wouldn't release his tax returns and is he healthier, is he overweight? All these issues are masking all the nihilistic things that Barack Obama is doing on his way out the door. And one of them is this idea that they're going to establish the target for how many refugees, so-called refugees are brought into this country 110,000 which I am sure if you went and you asked all of the law enforcement officers and everything they can't be properly screened and if we bring them over here we're not able to adequately monitor them Uh, right now you know FBI again what happened in Orlando FBI dropped the ball And imagine, bring in 110,000 more. There's going to be probably at least one or two, you could say. Uh, You're signing death warrants for some of our people here by bringing in populations that have that sort of risk without the proper protection. And to do it on our tax dollars and put us at risk, this is a double affront to the protection that our government's supposed to be giving us. Um, On the Trump front... We have Trump out there trying to get votes. And how is he trying to get votes? He's trying to get votes by having his daughter Ivanka go out there. And he's been doing it too. But argue on behalf of benefits that should be given to women. So, for example, a mandatory paid maternity leave for, you know, workers who have kids. And... You know, what's my response to this? Now you've got a so-called Republican who is stooping to the level of pandering the redistribution, the promises of redistribution of wealth that were formerly reserved for Democrats. He's doing this as a way to get the vote. And it is it is just really sad. You know, if if Trump ends up being the guy who's elected on November 8th, is there a chance that America is going to be better off? Sure, there's a chance, but, you know, he's he's not necessarily even going to do what he promises. And some of the stuff that he's promising is no different than what Democrats have promised before. There's one article and it's just been released, I think, today, and we've got to actually go and, and see. It looks like there's some real evidence behind it, though. Some people were saying that the observer is not necessarily a great, reliable source, but they are citing actual evidence. The headline is, the Hillary Clinton campaign is systematically overcharging the poorest donors. So here's what happens. It's much like my kind of battle, my plight with the Trump campaign. Somehow, probably because I was on another Republican candidate's email list, and that Republican candidate went ahead and sold the list to Trump. Somehow I ended up on Trump's email list. And then... When I tried to unsubscribe from Trump's email list, it was totally ineffective. Trump's email list is like Hotel California. You can check out anytime you like, but you can never leave. I keep getting emails from Trump, and it's 
I, I don't even bother clicking and subscribe anymore because then what do they learn? They learn that it's an active email. So if anybody's listening from the Trump campaign, shame on you guys for not honoring unsubscribe requests. That's really horrible. But it's not as bad as this. If this is true, this is really disturbing. Suppose you are a person, a very misguided person, who wants to donate to Hillary Clinton's campaign, and you go ahead and you sign up to give her 25 bucks, say. Then, with that credit card information, the Hillary campaign goes ahead and bills you again a couple more times, another $25 here, another $19 there. And what they do with these other charges that you didn't authorize is they go ahead and they're giving you, say, a total of just under $100 in unauthorized charges. And apparently the magic number is $100 for the bank to actually take it seriously and initiate an investigation for a fraudulent charge. So if the allegations are correct, there are a number of low-income donors whose accounts are being charged for amounts that they did not authorize as donations, only up to just below the $100 threshold so that the banks won't reverse the charges or engage in an investigation. There is apparently a movement in some states to get the attorney general to investigate this, and, and there's going to be an investigation of it. But that is a really low blow, you know, to take with, you know, particularly for these lower income donors, they can't even afford to give you more than they've already given you. Maybe they can't even afford the initial donation that they gave you, and then you're going to go ahead and keep charging them more. Uh, what does all this make you want to do? It makes you want to go ahead and support the libertarian ticket, including because Gary Johnson says he would pardon Snowden. And all of my complaints about Snowden notwithstanding, I would be in favor of giving him some sort of plea bargain at, at the least. You know, Let him actually either have a real trial, which apparently isn't legally possible right now, or give him some sort of a plea bargain where he does – you know, some reasonable small amount of, of jail time and is able to come back. And, and as he says, he wants to fight for his country and improve the state of privacy in his country as opposed to all over the world. You know, why not let him fight the battle here? Uh, libertarians have now support secured a spot on all 50 state ballots, including also the District of Columbia. So that is good news. Uh, the union leader of New Hampshire a newspaper in New Hampshire for the first time in a hundred years has not endorsed the Republican candidate instead has gone ahead and endorsed Gary Johnson, which I think is a great development. Um, the question will be, first of all, can he get, you know, can Gary Johnson and Bill Weld get to the crucial 15% threshold to get into the debates? Why is the, the threshold at 15%? By the way, I had a friend that was asking out the other day, isn't it true that Perot, had only 8% and yet they let him in the debates. Why is it that Gary Johnson and Bill Weld, they have to somehow meet this 15%? There is a one poll that is showing that they're at 13%, so that they're within the margin of error of this 15%, but I just don't know if they're going to be able to do it. They should be able to debate. We have serious, earnest endorsements for real reasons by respected newspapers and politicians and everybody around the country, plus a respectable showing in the polls, they should be there. A couple other good news items. Christian Bakers, who had been fined $135,000 for refusing to make a cake for a gay wedding, 
they are fighting back in the courts. And unfortunately, you know, it is the courts where this battle is going to have to take place, by the way. Um, It's going to have to be there because none of the current candidates for president are going to do anything about this legal environment. Johnson, as I've talked about in prior shows, is hiding behind the fact that the current state of the law would continue to uh, make them bake this cake and allow those fines to stand. So that's really kind of a sad state of the law. So good for them for fighting in court. Another fun little piece of good news, and this is from Brian Yoder. Boeing 737 MAX jets, that's the new kind of jet, they're going to have $69 one-way transatlantic fares. And that's supposed to start in March 2017, just March of this next year, cheap flight. So if we can somehow figure it out so that it's actually safe to go travel to all these places that we'd like to travel to for $69, that is awesome. Maybe they're going to do Trans-Pacific too. I'd like to see that starting March 2017. So some good news on the front. You know, if we can save our economy, allow people to support themselves and get some good jobs, then they can avail themselves of all this awesome travel and go out and see the all the cultural you know, products of the world like the Louvre and, you know, the um, the David in Florence and all of the Colosseum and the wonderful things of Rome and Pompeii and Athens, all the wonderful cultural products of, of Western civilization would be open to you for cheap. And that, that would be a, one, a great thing to see. I'm going to go ahead and finish the show with another fun little piece of good news and it is Grace Vanderwall won America's Got Talent. And she, if you haven't been following her, is the 12-year-old who plays the ukulele and also writes her own songs. And the final song that got her the million-dollar winning prize from America's Got Talent is one that she wrote herself called Clay. And I'm going to go ahead and play that for you as we leave today. Thank you everyone for joining me and I look forward to talking to you guys again next week at the usual time. Take care. Let me see if I can get this. Oh, you know what I'm going to have to do? I'm going to have to cue it up to the right spot because if you get to that video, it's about the two minute mark that it starts. Okay, here we go. You three a girl in the hallway And then you whisper to your friend Who is she anyway? You forgot what you looked like In like a day But you worth no hurt me I will be okay Cause you Shape, but baby, I'm not dead. Sorry, not 
today, baby, I'm not trying to keep the shape. Yeah. Hey.